The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? The Chinese Communist Party has some 98 million members. That's more people than the population of Germany. Its membership continues to grow, making it one of the most successful and resilient political parties of the last 100 years, perhaps with the exception of India's BJP, which boasts just about twice as many. So what drives someone to join the CCP and what accounts for its success? I think these are important questions to ask, because without understanding the answers to them, one couldn't understand China's modern history or its society today. So to delve into the psychology of card-carrying communists, I'm joined by two great guests today. Xi Ranxue is a Chinese journalist who had a popular radio show in China in the 90s before moving to the UK and becoming an author of numerous books on the country. Her latest book is called The Book of Secrets, which is a memoir of sorts, where her protagonist was one of the founding members of the CCP's intelligence service back in the 50s. I recently reviewed it for The Spectator. And I'm also joined by Professor Kerry Brown, who's the director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London and a former diplomat in Beijing, where he worked alongside Chinese government officials for many years. His latest book is China Incorporated, the politics of a world where China is number one. Kerry and Xinran, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Now, Kerry, can we start with the most obvious motivation for someone to join the CCP? ideology. So in other words, people who join because they truly believe in communism or or in the CCP's rule of China. How much is this a motivation for people joining the party now? And how much was it ever a motivation? I mean, look, I think in the past, historically, people joined because they believed. I mean, in the 30s and 40s. I think today, most people join for networks. I mean, you know, it's useful. It's a kind of, if you want to do things in politics in China. You you have to be a member of the party or you can't do anything at all. And it's also a good network for work. <laughs> it's useful. So although it's got 100 million members nearly the party, it's almost like a state, you know, it's got more members than German Germany's population. Um, I imagine most people who are members are, are just card-carrying members. They don't really do anything. I mean, I imagine if you ask party members today, what's your view of Xi Jinping thought for the new era? They would probably think that's a very strange question. But there's probably 3,000 members of the party who run the country. (laughs) So those those matter. But I think for the rest, membership is almost like a social network. It's the the world's biggest exclusive club, basically, the Communist (laughs) Party today. 
And Siren, your background is as a journalist in China. You've interviewed, I, I don't know, hundreds or maybe thousands of people. <laughs> I don't know how many. Um, but would you agree with that in terms of the changes in motivation for people joining the party? The academic Bruce Dixon, his American academic, has said that before reform and opening, people join for ideology. After reform and opening, they join for more for pragmatic career reasons, like Kerry has said. Would, would you agree that with that of the people that you've interviewed from different generations? Um, well, I have to say yes. I agree with that. Uh, maybe eighty-five percent or up to ninety percent. And I'm Chinese. I'm made in China. <laughs> so you ask me how many people I interviewed face to face, recording, filming, uh, more than three hundred. Uh, most women and also last two, three generations as well. And because I tried to re-educate myself. Uh, when 1988, when I became a radio journalist, I thought, I was 30, I thought I would well-educated, you know, I know my country, I know everything. But then I realized from my first trip to the countryside, then I realized I had knew nothing about my country, my people, and also even my own parents. So back to uh, Carrie's point about this, I think you're absolutely right about uh, the last generation or last two generations, I would say from the 1930s all the way to 1950s. I would say, and that the, they are the people follow the beliefs. Even some people, they've never been educated like I interviewed. So when I ask them, why you join the party? You know, you can't read and write, you just followed. Then they give me the reason is, okay, Mao is the first emperor who gave them a free land, free house, or someone even say, even free wife. You know, I believe any country, if you have the, you know, leader, politic, <laughs> politician to stand up, say, I will give you this, or at least cut all of your tax, they might vote for him. So that is happened, I would just say, more like 1950s. But afterwards, uh, when the Cultural Revolution started, their group of people joined the party. I think they just been pulled into this kind of, by the fear, not really by beliefs, mm-hmm. because that time is you have to make your future choice between the death and the live. Without joining the party, you could facing this kind of criminal or this uh, even death penalty. So that is before the 1980s. So after 1980s, if from my research, that were about, uh, I think about 10 years, from 1980s to 1995, and many people, if you read the parties, the records, the many people actually stay back, watch out, and uh, do I need to join that? Do really I believe that? Because Soviet, that time, 1989. Mm-hmm. So they thought, okay, the America is God. So that time. So by that time, I noticed a party had a new policy, say, if you want to get promoted, okay, you have to be a party member. I was told like that. I used to work in the radio station. I was like, uh, you know, in charge of uh, some big project. Uh, so head of my station said, you have to join the party. Otherwise, you can't be promoted. So this kind of policy, I think, uh, last 
today. Mm. So if you ask, uh, I interview lots of young generation now in the universities. So I discovered they they become the party members. They said you have to Mm. because if you want to get a proper job, if you can, this is the first things for them. You get a job as you benefit from the party members. And secondly, they judge you, good person or bad person, by your party members or not. Simply black and white. So I think uh, now the most reason for young people is beneficiary. Mm. Yeah. I want to get to that modern day um, later in the podcast, but just to go chronologically, Kerry, maybe we can start by talking about when Marxism first started taking root as an intellectual idea, at least in China, because Siran says, you know, Mao was the first emperor who gave peasants all these rights. And you can see why those uneducated were involved. But for the educated people, what was it about Marxism that appealed to them at that time in China in in 1927 was when the party was founded? Yeah, I mean, so the works of Marx were first imported into China in um, Japanese translations. Uh, in fact, Liang Qichao was the first Liang person Qichao. to yeah. um, translate parts of the Communist Manifesto in about 1900, I think. Mm. The Communist Party was founded formally, the first Congress was 1921, and I think there were 55 members and only 13 members at the first meeting in Shanghai in June, July that year. Two foreigners, one Dutch uh, and one um, Russian. Mm-hmm. So it got a lot of financial support from the Soviet Union. It was that was the inspiration. And as you know, in 1927, I mean, the, the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, Jiang Jiafu, they, they nearly wiped out the Communist Party in Shanghai. For people joining then, you know, well, Mao Zedong made two big changes, I think, that made it appealing to people. One was uh, he made it a kind of rural revolution. Right? Mm. I, I mean, in orthodox Marxism, it's cities, proletariat, you know. And Mao really focused on the countryside, and so that was where the revolutionaries came from. And I think, secondly, he really liked to use class struggle and violence, right? I mean, Mao was a man who believed in having a real good fight. (laughs) And, And from 1927, I think this became very big for rural people who felt um, you know, a lot of injustice that, you know, the party was saying there's class struggle, mm. you can overturn this situation. And was that um, because of disillusionment at the KMT, at the Kuomintang rule at the time? Yeah, yeah. Though Mao afterwards said that it was the Japanese who really mm. built the support because their invasion created this enormous chaos. And the communists really, they never fought the Japanese, you know, not, not often. It was the nationalists who fought That's them, not but... what the TV shows say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's amazing. But, but, but I, I think that this created a basis of discontent. And then, of course, the communists. So it wasn't really an intellectual movement. Mm. It was an emotional movement. And that, I think that's the strange thing today, that the Communist Party doesn't really a- appeal to ideology I don't think it's Mm. not really it's about feelings nationalism and great state and you know being Chinese and so actually the Marxist bit was never that important it was really more about national sentiment and nationalism well, well, Kerry, that kind of anticipates my next question, actually, because there are two isms here when we talk about ideology. There's communism slash Marxism or there's nationalism, right? Do you think nationalism actually drove people more because they were looking at the incumbent Kuomintang government, they were looking at the Japanese occupation, and they thought we want something different, better for China. And that's where communism was almost a vehicle, what do you think? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, Mao Zedong was a nationalist, right? And, and I mean, he didn't really meet, I mean, he never read 
Das Kapital. I mean, uh, what? Marxist. No, 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 not, not at all. <laughs> Xi Jinping says that he has read Das Kapital three times. <laughs> I have to say, uh, Mao apparently only read the Communist Manifesto and the ABC of Communism, which was by Stalin. And so, um, so yeah, yeah, no. So, <laughs> no, it's, it's I mean, so and actually, we know this because they weren't translated into Chinese, and Mao couldn't read Russian Gosh. and he couldn't read English. So, no. actually, it's nationalism is the pure sort of core of communism in China. And I think it was really about answering this question of why are we sort of suffering in modern you know, world? Why have we been victimised? Mm. Here's a sort of way of us saying we believe in our national greatness. And, and that's true today. I think the nationalism is the fire of communism. Mm. If, you, if you kind of look under the bonnet of communism in China, it's really about, you know, Chineseness and nationalism, and that's where it tries to get legitimacy. Mm. Uh, Sarah, yeah. you have a new book out. Um, it's called The Book of Secrets, and it's a memoir of sorts. It's a non-fiction. Uh, and the protagonist that you write about, Jie, I think it's fair to say he's also driven by nationalism to join the party in the 1940s. But, but tell us about him and why, as a young man, did he join the party? Can you allow us to see the world through his eyes? I think just like uh, Carrie mentioned, and uh, many people joined the Communist Party really were driven by this kind of national proud, you know, particularly Japanese invasion mm. to the Shanghai in 1930s. Yeah, actually, so this started early uh, 1937 all the way to the 39. So that really hit me him and one story he remembered he first time see woman's body and was he helped the mother to carry the rice with the clothes warm clothes they were smuggling it in their clothes yes yeah. and the pass to the japanese soldiers how do you suppose? Yeah. Occupying the city at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, in Shanghai, just between the city and the countryside. Then he saw the Japanese soldier and uh, opened this uh, pregnancy, the woman, because they guess the woman uh, is a fake uh, pregnancy, is a you know, carried some goods. So when he saw that, he was really shocked that this has become a nightmare yeah. During his whole life, because he would have been a child at the time. He was she, only fifteen, and she she bled to death in front of him, and the Japanese yes, soldiers and laughed. with blood opened the body, and so this was very first time for him. Then later on, his family came from a very big wealth family and worked with the British as well. Then the family crashed down by this kind of you know Japanese invasion, and also later on, and the whole family just disappeared by this kind of the war period. Mm. So that drove him to become a Communist Party underground members when he was in Tsinghua University. Mm. Yeah. And also he really believed that at that time. And because uh, and he saw and the Kuomintang's and the government was a corruption and also lied to people and also they need soldiers so you know when this during the civil war the both sides need more soldiers but obviously they can see and the communist party win the other people's support so this all made him really believe that before 19 i would say 57 afterwards he started questioning about party 
Mm. And Siran, 1957 is a good place to point to because Kerry, after 1949, when the communists take over, you know, before then you might say a communist is a theoretical ideal, you know, sure you have the Soviet Union to look at, but a lot of information wasn't exactly freely dispersed. But after 1949, the party started having things on its track record, blemishes to say the least. <laughs> 1957, obviously, um, the Great Famine. So how did that change the way people felt about the party? I mean, to the extent that we can generalise at all, um, of course, or at least how the party was seen, or was propaganda just so extensive that it was still seen as the, as the prestigious thing to do? Well, I mean, so the party went from a party of revolution to a party of government, and, and that was obviously a big transition. And I think um, for the countryside, maybe the support was still good. As Sinran has just said, people's memory of trauma Mm. in the 30s and 40s, you know, the levels of violence in society for the Japanese invasion from the bombings. I mean, 20 million people died. 50 million people became homeless. I mean, China was in trauma. So in some ways, the early years of communism were optimistic because at least the violence had stopped, including the Civil War. The Civil War had also killed many people. But almost immediately, you know, the land reform movement, maybe two million landlords, you know, were beaten up or killed. That was in 1951, I think, 50, 51. Um, Through 51 all the way to 56, 57. Yeah. Yeah. And and actually a similar process that occurred in Taiwan and the Republic of China. Absolutely, yes. But no no violence, right? So Mm. these things could be done, but with with very high levels of violence in China. I think the other thing is that there was a lot of division in society and Mao Zedong's ideology was that we have to um, encourage this division. We need to have... Struggle, you know, class struggle. I think Mao really believed in class struggle. So he made a secret speech in 1957, I think, managing contradictions amongst the people, which kind of basically said, let's, you know, allow the good classes to defeat the bad classes. So this combination of trauma, um, a party which didn't really know how to govern, and an ideology about class conflict just built up until in the Cultural Revolution from 1966... Mm. The whole thing clashed. And I think that's, you know, for the first 20 sort of five years of the Communist Party's rule, there was a lot of domestic self-harm, almost like a self-harm. And I think that's things that not really kind of talked about today. But I think it does, you know, it's a memory that people have. It's a really traumatic memory. I think China needs to go on a couch, you know, like (laughs) a therapist's couch and sort of talk this out because I think it's quite repressed at the moment. And Xi Jinping has a memory of this. I mean, he yes. was sent to um, the countryside in 1969. I mean, he... he his father was his punished father was, yeah, as well, yeah. His father, yeah. Xi Jinping, was put into house arrest. So yeah, yeah. you kind of think, why is he sort of so nice about Mao Zedong? Um, yeah. I wonder a if A question that we've talked about, me and you, carry on, on this podcast indeed, before. Yeah. yeah, so I think trauma is a big role in Chinese mm. history. Trauma and dealing with trauma. It's a very, very yeah. violent hard history. Yeah. And then particularly after 1911, when the China end of the last emperor, mm. you know, China falling to this kind of civil war. So when we talk about civil war, it's not a piece of the history. It's about a, each single family lost their men in the battlefield. So that really become a very serious, if you read this uh, that the history between this period. But by the, after t- uh, 1949, Actually, first group, I would say, from my research in this book, you mm. know, the book of the secrets as well. And a uh, bigger group really believe a Communist Party was uh, 
well-educated uh, scholars. Many of them come back to China, went back to China from America, UK, or many countries. So there is a book now just come out called uh, Nan Gui, uh, Nan Du Bei Gui, sorry, Nan Du Bei Gui, is more than 100 scholars being killed during the Cultural Revolution or mm. before. Yeah. So why I mentioned is uh, by the uh, before the 1957, this is a turning mm. point, because that before that, so many scholars believe the Communist Party could rescue or rebuild this country. Mm. So they come back with their knowledge, the family, whatever. But this kind of clean up political class struggles more started from 1956. Yeah, and maybe earlier, earlier. Uh, from Shanghai, and everything is in the book from mm. my research. And then they tried to drive the capitalism out of China. So that was okay. But later on, when scholars realized that Mao had no idea how to manage the country with economists or international knowledge or whatever. So his mind was very narrow-minded. He just wanted to fight with the Stalin Soviet Union has replaced his power as, uh, you know, leader of a, a socialism the country, the networks. So by the 1956 or 57, because this kind of forward, mm. the economist and uh, the food products really huge job in China, people living with the starving. Yeah, so many people died. And so from the scholar. Uh, level educated people being punished because they disagree with the Mao's policy. But for the ordinary people, peasants, farmers, they died because of starvation. Mm. So by that point, so many scholars, including the GL of this book, mm. he started to question what's wrong with this country. Then he first time mentioned, say, Mao didn't want to use well-educated yes. people. It seemed like there were two kinds of communists, the intellectuals, the educated people, and the peasants who were there because, you know, for the first time ever, this government yeah. was good to them. Yeah, this is why I agree with uh, Professor Nenga Kerry just mentioned. So Mao analyzed the try to get this practice of fighting. Mm. Actually, only this kind of fighting could help him to gain the power and the support from uh, ordinary people. Because all the scholars, which is a very small number compared to big population, you know, they disagree with him. So include the chairman of a nation, Liu Shaoqi, yeah, who be punished as well. He was killed during the Cultural Revolution. Mm. Yeah, I mentioned that uh, story in my another book called China Witness. I was really... How do you feel so sad? So many people, they devoted their lives for rebuild, for their beliefs, mm. rebuild the country, nation, yeah. but they died. And, and that's, that's, that's still nationalism, as you say, Simran, is this idealistic view of what China could be, maybe looking towards countries like Japan and seeing the rebuilding. Kerry, how did the Cultural Revolution change all of this? Or was it such a crazy period <laughs> where people joining the party at the time? I guess, you know, there were people, perpetrators, you know, the Red Guards were very much loyalists. Yeah, I mean, the, the good thing about the Cultural Revolution was that it was an attack on the party, right? I mean, it was the uh, elite leader, Mao Zedong, 
kind of attacking the party because it was bureaucratic and he felt that it was becoming its own power base. So membership, though, if you, if you look at the, the kind of typical party members in the 50s, they were mostly uneducated, rural, you know, kind of maybe some workers. But as you go on, uh, the party membership becomes more and more either graduating from high school mm-hmm. or graduating from college today. The membership is is obviously highly educated. I mean, you, you need a, a good education usually to be party member. I don't think many people who would say that they were uh, peasants are members of the party now. But, I mean, I think the impact of the Cultural Revolution was that it did change the culture of the party. It meant it, the party survived Mao Zedong. I mean, it survived Mao Zedong. And under Deng Xiaoping, the party was, you know, the, uh, um, in the 1980s, the party became a sort of technocratic body. It became interested in organising society and governance and mm. much more technocratic. And I think that's because of the late Maoist period being quite a disaster, really. I mean, a big economic disaster. So after that, the Communist Party became a sort of professionalised technocratic body, which was Mao Zedong's worst nightmare. I mean, the worst nightmare was a professional governing class. But today, that's what the party is, a professional governing class, technocratic. Mm. And Siran, that's what you mean when you say it became the the thing to incentivise people to join the party after that, despite all of the turbulence, was this is good for your career. There are material benefits here. Also, I read something from uh, uh, Mao Zedong Archive Centre. There is the Mao Zedong Archive Centre there. And there was very interesting, some report from the countryside, from outside of Beijing, the sentence was very interesting, say, there are many persons, Hang on Mao and Liu Shaoqi's uh, uh, photo at the same time. Mm. I didn't realize what's the deal for people mentioned that it's in this kind of documentary and for the party, it's very serious documentary. Then uh, someone working there about, for the research, they said that is kind of a signal the dangerous risk to mouse power. So that means two tigers in the mountain. You know, Chinese would say they never allowed one, two tigers in the mountain. It's like maybe British say, you know, the only one chef in the kitchen, you know. So that time maybe is a, uh, one signature for personal. And uh, secondly, I will read some material uh, documents that said uh, that time uh, by 1963 to 1965, just before the Cultural Revolution, everybody tried in the party leadership, tried to blame who is the fault for this uh, death, huge numbers of mm-hmm. death. Yeah, who is the fault? I think that also is the party's uh, the idea or Mao's idea uh, to do some clean up as uh, Stalin did just before the Second World War, mm-hmm. you know. So that's uh, possibly second reason. And the third reason, actually, if you read this, uh, how the cultures uh, revolution start so quickly, it's like a huge fire spread out. And I think uh, was the students. Mm. I interviewed some students during the Tiananmen in 1989. When I asked them, you know, why you have this idea? How did you do that? Mm. Then they always say they are guided, advised by their professors from Beijing University. But in the history, we have a Wu Si Yun Dong. 
May 4th. Yes, May 4th. It's also started from Beijing University as well. So that kind of uh, message mm. gave me the lesson is because uh, by 1966, when the Cultural Revolution took place, there are only less than 5% of the people of the Chinese population have been educated. Mm. So people always believe education in China, even the poor village, best house must be the school. So for many people believe if scholars or students or the university, you know, wave the flag, say we need a revolution, people followed. Mm. So that is, I feel, this kind, you know, the inside, the stories, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it collaborated with the prestige of being educated, almost um, the intellectuals' prestige, basically. Yeah. Um, Kerry, what about 1989 then? Because <laughs> um, Siran mentioned the word fear in, in your first answer. 1989, Tiananmen Square is seen as such a big moment for China outside of China. Inside of China, did it have an impact on the party's reputation in terms of whether or not people wanted to join the party? Because it's not really before, after reform and opening, that's the dividing line, really. I mean, 1989 was after reform and opening technically started. So do you think that would have been a reputational damage for people who wanted to join the party or not so much? Well, you probably remember 89 um, uh, and the Tiananmen Square uprising. I mean, I think it didn't, it, it did have a big impact on the party's reputation Afterwards, I mean, I think the use of violence against students, you know, was was unprecedented. That never really happened before. So I think it kind of really was a moment of a crossroad moment. And I think it's the closest the party has come since 1949 to nearly falling from power. Mm. But what happened afterwards was two things. One, America supported Mm. China. I mean, within a few weeks, George um, H.W. Bush reconnected with Deng Xiaoping and the leaders. And so that was a big piece of support. And I think the second thing was about a year after 89, year and a half, Deng Xiaoping recommitted to, you know, uh, economic reform, the Mm, Southern Tour. mm, mm, mm. And I guess that was rebuilding its legitimacy just economically. And that kind of meant it could continue. But it was an extremely important event because I think the party was divided. I mean, the older leaders around Deng Xiaoping, I mean, Li Peng, the premier then, they really, really kind of decided we are not going to compromise. And on top of that, you had Zhao Ziyang and other leaders who were just moved aside. So it was a pretty brutal moment. But I mean, they stayed in power unless they they won until now. Yeah. Sorry, I just remind me a joke in China about this moment. They said uh, in 1989 was the car and the Deng Xiaoping and Prime Minister Li Peng and uh, drive the car, Deng Xiaoping sitting in the back. So Li Peng, Prime Minister, asked Deng Xiaoping at the junction. So where we go? In front is uh, China's future, and the left is a Soviet, uh, Russian, and the right is America. So Deng Xiaoping said, turn the direction light to the left, but drive your car to the right. <laughs> I think that is a perfect explain what's going on in China that time. Because partly, like Kerry uh, uh, just mentioned, partly people's beliefs to the party and turn to America. 
Yeah, so that is a very popular uh, word called uh, "I love the American dollars." You know, and the, the writer Zhu Wen Zhu Wen wrote the book. The title is "I Love American Dollar." That period from the yeah. That period, all the way to I would say maybe 2015 or 13, people really believe mm. America is a god. Yeah, and secondly, because we used to adopted Soviet system, you know, from 1949 in my the new book mentioned about this. First foreign language was Russian,、mm. secondly was German, third one is English. So people being educated by the Russian system and also. Rational knowledge or system, everything. So suddenly, by 1989, Russia collapsed.、Mm. You know, like people feel that something in their mind is gone or is not real. So this kind of psychologically or party's culture is a huge change. So that 89 events is very important.、Mm. It's a turning point for whole China. Mm. And yet, Chinese Communist Party membership continued to rise between 1977 and 1987. About 11 million more people joined the party during that period of great change, and then by 1997, another 14 million people had joined the party. So, what was still the appeal of the party then, even though the country was turning away from communism? Was it, as you say, Kerry, this professionalization, that the fact that it was linked to material goods by that by that time, or was no longer ideology? Yeah, I mean, if you want to, as Sinran said earlier, if you want to have a good career as leadership positions, even in a university, you, you have to be a member of the party. I mean, you're not going to become, you know, a senior leader in a university now if you're not not likely that you'll be a member、mm. of the party. In the past, ministries sometimes had non-party members, science ministry and things like that, but that's gone now. I mean, under Xi Jinping, the party is dominant everywhere. If you're going to be in a state enterprise. You've got to be a member of the party, really, to get a leadership position because you've got to prove that you're trusted. I mean, so I think the kind of way in which the party now is present everywhere. I mean, even in non-state companies, you have party、yeah. representatives. In almost every organisation,、uh, you have to have you know party representation. So for a career, you know, you have a very harsh choice. You you can not belong to the party. But there's definitely a very strong. Well, it's not a glass ceiling. It's actually a very, very clear ceiling. Okay, <laughs> and so we're trying to hide itself. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I can understand that. Look, I work in a British university, and I mean, there's all sorts of secret codes, you know, and everyone belongs to this sort of group of leaders, and no one likes them, you know. But I mean, the Communist Party sort of is like that. It's sort of this. Enormous kind of career help,、mm. and whether people like it or not, I mean, I think it's such a huge organization. I don't know whether they like it or they don't like it. You said, you know, maybe earlier that the、uh, Communist Party members are evil. No, I don't think they're evil. I mean, I think people just join most of the time because it's going to be the best way that they're going to get, you know, an okay job and some kind of leadership. Some people don't join; they're very principled, but they're not the majority. I、mm. mean, most people. They just want to get by, and、mm. I feel seen around from my conversations with Chinese people, some of whom are party members that I've spoken to, that. 
actually, if you talk to them about the wrongs that the party has done, critiquing those things, because of the political education they've received where the party is equated with the country or, or the notion of the Chinese government itself, they find it very difficult to criticise the party for its own mistakes because it feels then you're being unpatriotic, you're being treasonous perhaps, and so they feel like they can't criticise the party. No, they can't. But this situation has changed in 2022, mm-hmm. during the Shanghai pandemic uh, lockdown, from my very fresh interview the last maybe 12 months, and so many young people gave me the sentence, say, we are last generation. Mm. So when I ask them, do you know where this sentence come from? Actually, it's, it's from uh, the Russia. It's during the Stalin period, lots of people and they said, we are the last generation of the party mm-hmm. and of this nation. So now many young people in China, particularly in those capital cities, we have 662 cities. By now, maybe change it next day. They are just changing so fast now. And so... In this over uh, 30 capital cities, like 35 capital cities, lots of young people now, they say they are last generation, means they don't want to join the party, they don't want a job, they don't want to marry, they don't want children. They, they want, want to participate to in the system. Yes. So that is quite a big message to mm. the country. So even they try to build up this kind of nationalism or to guide people or to persuade people to mm. believe something. But for those group young people who educated from a good family or had a very strong network, they have this kind of philosophy or beliefs that say they are last generation of Communist Party. Mm. I hear what you're saying, Sinran, about this group of young people who are a bit more critical, a bit more cynical, perhaps, and a bit more pessimistic about the direction that the party is taking the country in. But I also feel like the economic realities are pulling other young people back towards the party, or at least the state itself. You know, you look at the civil service examinations every single year in the last few years. There were about three million applicants last year. And while you don't have to be a CCP member to apply to be a civil servant, 95% of senior civil servants are party members. I mean, it's just so aligned to the political uh, system of the country. And so they are being pulled back because they want to have the stability of a government job in this time of economic uncertainty. They want to have that uh, iron rice bowl. And I guess that that's a different trend, that that's a different direction that is they're being pulled in. It's a part of, they, they don't say that, but... Um. Uh, when there's a censorship or when they have the, this tick the box, definitely in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely have, in You there. definitely have to be a party member yeah. if you're in the military and you have to be a party member if you're in the foreign service, for instance. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think what, what Sinan just said about, I think there's massive changes that are going to happen in China. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the cultural difference of the younger generation is is big, right? I mean, they use things like Kuaishou, you know, this sort of... Um, TikTok, I suppose. Yes. You know, they're kind of doing really sort of different things. They're quite anarchic. I think Mm. that they're a bit nihilistic, (laughs) you know. And I don't know whether we look at this strange system with Xi Jinping at the centre and it's all sort of very still and boring. 
but actually what we're seeing is profound changes. Mm. Young Younger people, how are they going to be the same kind of mentality as older people? They are so different. I mean, they're mostly single, you know, single children. They're mostly people that have been brought up in a very, very different kind of culture. A lot of them have travelled abroad. I mean, a lot of them have been educated abroad. Yeah. I think their mentality is very different. It's a big generational difference and that must make a difference. I don't, with my students at, at King's from China, I don't know, they just, it's, I feel like when I teach them about Xi Jinping thought or Xi Jinping, I'm teaching medieval Latin <laughs> to a young British person. You know, they, they kind of look at this. They don't wow. believe you. Well, they and then they question. Very, yes. Yeah, they think it's just really funny. And yeah, like, oh, yeah. wow, did people used to really believe in that nonsense? You yeah. know, like that there was a flat world. And, you know, it doesn't, but what it doesn't do is speak to their emotions. I mean, it doesn't speak to their emotions. What about the point about nationalism, though? Because yeah. nationalism is on the rise. You've, you do have young nationalists, too. You know, there's these little pink xiaofenhong online as well, who are these keyboard warriors who defend China's honour, even though no one asked them to. Um, you know, nationalism is still a force to be reckoned with in China now with younger generations, is it not? Well, it is. And also, I think it's a very different way. If you analyze what they say, partly social media and become a bigger, uh, how do you say, window or breathing space for them, mm. because they hardly have any information about the textbooks, about real history from the textbooks or social media, or even family. We don't talk about family, the history or secrets or past we don't talk about it in the last three generations, include myself. So I think this at the moment for the young people, why they use this kind of social media so often or can express themselves. But another hand, you can see they've been driven or narrowed down to the certain points in the black and white mm-hmm. because they don't have this kind of independent, the education of independent thinking or archive research mm. or history, you know, debate, they don't have this chance. It's not, you know, many people blame them to say, oh, they do nothing, they don't care about this. They're just very simply or black or white become this kind of nationalism. But we have to understand how they become this. Mm. Yeah, they, they, they come from this kind of materials, very rich ocean, but they grow up in the lonely island. It's like a desert for culture, for the study, it really is. Then I feel is, um, well, in the last uh, half a year, I met so many Chinese students. They fled into the London for travel, for family, but after pandemic, the very first time that people free come out, yeah. Then you found something very strange is very young people, university students include, they live in huge affair. I feel the very familiar is during the Cultural Revolution or after Cultural Revolution. You know, the one story really got me. I pick up students from Heathrow Airport mm-hmm. to Paddington by the Express. So she started working already. So I said, how's your company, blah, blah. Then she said, oh, I'm so worried. They just cut off the staff, so the foreigners mm-hmm. withdraw, blah, blah. Then he, she suddenly said, shh, 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 don't talk. Don't talk. I said, I was like, come on, just in London on the, you know, the British yeah. train. Why are you fair? Then she said, no, no, no. If someone says something, not just me, my family get trouble. Mm. So that really what me 
that made me so worried. You know, after 40 years of open policy, we tried so hard to open this, to free people from this kind of, you know, uh, personal view or freedom of speech. But now suddenly for young people, mm. they back to their parents' track, leaving the fair. Mm. So that, I don't know, do, do, do your students have the same yeah, I situation? Yeah, I think they are cautious. And we found in the classrooms that they are much more aware of not saying things that other people might report. And that's become an issue. I mean, if you're talking about Taiwan or Tibet, oh, yes, or, yeah. I think people are very... They're very cautious. They don't want to say. But much. compared to five years ago, your students. Yeah, it has, yeah, yeah, it has got since the pandemic. I think mm. it's got worse. Okay, mm. this is what I feel. Yeah, yeah, and and Kerry, just going back to your point about sitting <laughs> Ping thought being like medieval history. Do you think for the future years, then the party needs to reinvent itself if it wants to continue being an organisation that grows, or at least is in there in force. Or is it more that, as we've seen in recent years with Xi Jinping, that he actually only wants the ideologues in the party? He wants people who are, you know, when we say card-carrying communists, he wants those people. He doesn't really want people to dilute the membership much more. Well, I think that the party's tried to make its language and message more accessible. And, I mean, I don't think it's it's easy because people don't like politics. I mean, I don't, they don't like politics anywhere. We don't like politics in Britain, not even the spectator. I mean, we love the spectator. <laughs> it's the cultural stuff you do. It, 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 the politics stuff, I think people found, find it, you, you know, difficult. And I think the party, if it talks the language of nationalism, you know, China's number one, make China great again, well, then I, I guess people will be supportive because people are patriotic. But I don't think the future the party can continue being all about ideology. I mean, I think people are more complicated and mm. uh, the younger members, we don't know w what they're going to be like. I mean, there's some new emerging leaders. Um, the party secretary of Shanghai, Cheng, Cheng Jining, is actually a graduate of Imperial College. Mm. You know, so he sort of speaks in a different kind of way. He's able to talk in English and Chinese and it's actually maybe leaders like that in the future, they're going to be very different. I think Xi Jinping, it's almost like the end. I don't know. People the last call, person in that generation. Yeah, I mean, everyone is so obsessed by Xi Jinping and it's like he's always going to be there. But no, he's not always going to be there. And I kind of get the feeling this is the end of this kind of leadership. You know, yeah. it's sort of very hard to see this sustainable. In the future, they're going to have to have people like a Chinese version of Donald Trump. And then we really have a problem. Then we're going to be fighting like hell. Because you imagine a Chinese populist leader Actually, charismatically, this would be very terrifying. Yeah. Xi Jinping we can deal with, you know, because he's kind of scary and wooden. And But if we had a really good mm. communicator, a very sort of populist leader, you know, we are going to take on America, we have a real problem. Mm. And I think we're probably going to be facing that quite soon. That new generation yeah. is really interesting. It's something that Ke Yujing, who's an academic at the LSE, yeah. you know, who's written about it, called The New China Playbook, and I had her on the podcast, you know, she's talking about these Western-educated 30, 40-something-year-old communists who are now going back and climbing up the ranks as you say the yeah. Shanghai Party Secretary yeah. for example so those will be really interesting to watch I think in the future. Xinan Xue and Kerry Brown thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers thank you. thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well if you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from you will always get the latest episode first 
there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's a way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.